This episode of Manage Smarter is brought to you by SalesFuel Sales Manager Training. Based on the Sales Manager's Guide to Greatness, it's a 36-lesson on-demand program to upskill your sales manager so they can execute your vision and drive consistent revenue growth. Watch a free lesson and find out more at salesfuel.com SMT. Welcome to the Manage Smarter Podcast with hosts C. Lee Smith and Audrey Strong. We're glad you're here for discussions on new ways to manage smarter, hire, develop, and retain talent, improve results, and propel team performance to new heights. This is the Manage Smarter Podcast. Well, this show, in case you didn't notice, is part of the C-Suite Network, and the gentleman that we have as a guest today is also part of that, and his expertise is in peer advisory groups, and C-Suite is kind of a peer advisory group, right, Lee? Totally is. It's like, yeah, we're going to learn about peer innovation, whatever the hell that means, we're going to find out. <laughs> That's yeah, we're going to find out. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to Manage Smarter, everyone. I'm Audrey Strong, Vice President of Communications here at SalesFuel. And I'm Celie Smith, the President and CEO of SalesFuel. Welcome to you, Leo Patari. How are you, sir? Fantastic. How are you both today? We're good. It's good to see you again, my friend. So Leo, in case you haven't met him, he's the founder and managing partner of Peer Innovation LLC and author of the new book, Peer Innovation, What Peer Advisory Groups Can Teach Us About Building High-Performing Teams. And his mantra is, we learn better together. The power of we begins with me. I like it. It rhymes and it's catchy, right, Leo? (laughs) So let's start with that. Where'd you come up with that? You know, um, oftentimes things like that just emerge out of the work, right? When over and over you just see the importance of people who, when they see themselves as not there just to fill a seat, but there to make a difference. Mm-hmm. Um, and no matter whether you're leading the team or that you're on the team, you know, oftentimes, even if we're not the leader of the team, we can be a leader in the team. You know, again, we have a role, we have a responsibility and, um, a, you know, talents that we're bringing to any team in any organization. And I think when we own that and embrace those things, it just makes us a stronger team member. So I think realizing that it starts with me and my behavior, how I am with my other team members, how I engage with the leader uh, of the team, whether I'm leading the team or not, um, you know, is really essential. So let's let's start at the ground level then. For people who are, let's say, the, the frontline managers may not be familiar with what a peer advisory group is. Let's define that. Sure. Well, in the book, too, I talk about the difference between groups and teams. Uh, a group is are individuals who come together, and what they do is they work together to help each other achieve their individual goals, whatever that may happen to be for themselves or their organizations. A team typically comes together to create a shared work product or to win a national championship or win a world title or create the best advertising. You went to Rutgers. That doesn't count for you. (laughs) You No, not yet. (laughs) Not yet. (laughs) And it could be enough for a while, you know, but, but all those things, but, you know, I I think, um, you know, that, you know, becomes an essential, you know, part of that. So is there a certain way that groups should be organized that's a best or better practice so that peers can open up and really feel like, hey, I have something to teach you and I really want to learn this from this guy over here in a way that is most efficient? Yeah. So one of the things that started was, you know, back in 2016, uh, Leon Shapiro, who was a former CEO of Vistage, he and I collaborated on a book called The Power of Peers. Mm-hmm. And the reason we wrote it at the time was I had actually led a brand refresh for Vistage back in 2012, where I conducted a number of focus groups with CEOs and other business leaders. And I would ask them, 
what do you do to learn? What do you do to grow, bring new ideas into your organization? And they tell me everything from, I read books, I have a coach, I hire consultants, I go to executive development programs at Harvard, Stanford. Um, but no one really in an unassisted way was saying, oh, I'm part of a peer group, or I would even have that as part of my consideration set. So it was kind of interesting to me because having seen CEOs and key executives uh, at all levels participate in peer groups and get such unbelievable value from them, it just astonished me that it would just was so, you know, underutilized by I think, you know, so many. So I, I kind of, you know, I talked to the CEO and we talked to the board and basically said, look, you know, we think we're trying to sell a Mercedes to someone who doesn't even know what a car is. And so why don't we be thought leaders on this and not just look at Vistage and create a hardcover brochure for the company, but let's look at CEO groups and peer groups of all kinds. We looked at YPO, EO, Renaissance, different uh, organizations here in the US and around the world. We looked at Bill George's work where he talked about creating your own peer group. And you know, we discovered, I think, really two important pieces. One is that high-performing peer groups tended to have what we refer to as a robust learning achieving cycle. Hmm. So what they do is they learn and they learn really well together. And we know that we learn better when we learn together and we, hmm. and we learn it for longer and we learn things more deeply. We also encourage and give other, each other the courage to act on that learning. And when we do, even if there's some trial and error involved there, once we learn something, apply it, achieve great results from it, we wanna do more of that and we start getting better at it. Uh, so that was number one. Uh, second one was we also felt like, okay, well, that's great, but that doesn't happen just by throwing a bunch of people in the room and hoping for the best. Right. So right. this is where we looked at the five factors and how essential they were. And I'll run through them quickly. One is having okay. the right people in the room. Uh, second is psychological safety. Third is productivity. Uh, fourth being accountability. And fifth being a level of servant leadership that also involves being a steward of those other four factors. So, I mean, I, of course, I can talk about any one of those at whatever level you want, but at least that paints a picture of, I think, two important findings for us. And then, of course, since that time, you know, I've spent the last uh, four years primarily doing workshops for CEO peer groups uh, throughout North America and the UK. And in doing so, it became very clear about how applicable all of these concepts were to high performing teams. Mm -hmm. And it was just a matter of um, pressure testing that a bit, you know, with some different teams and seeing how incredibly powerful uh, it can be. Which of those five do you think that most people struggle the most with? Right people. Mm. Mm. Tell me more. So I think people don't often know who works in their organization and why. Um, I think many of us can probably identify with the idea that, hey, I have um, saw this great resume. I interviewed them. Our team interviewed them. We thought they were great. Three months later, this isn't working out, and none of us really gets what happened and how we missed this. Um, it doesn't mean the person was bad. Oftentimes, they'll go somewhere else and be wildly successful. But they didn't work here. And it's oftentimes because we don't pinpoint well enough the, the attributes and things that really make a difference between someone who's successful in this organization and someone who's not. I think once we're able to do that, it puts us on a path to be able to do a lot of these other things. Um, I think second on the list, you know, not just because it's second in the cycle, but I think achieving psychological safety 
is really challenging, particularly in a team environment where people believe there are consequences that exist that don't necessarily exist in a group. And it's why the commitment of leadership and the way they model uh, the way in that regard is essential to achieving any kind of psychological safety uh, in an organization, a team. Is yeah, if you a, select the right people, you know, then every the other four things become much easier. And if you don't select the right people, everything else becomes much harder. It does. It does. In fact, one of the leadership models that uh, you'll find in the book is not the leader on top with all of the, you know, employees reporting to them, like the all powerful odds. <laughs> you know, um, it's much. It's actually set up as a as a triad, and it recognizes that the leader, each individual team member, and the team itself as an entity all have equal responsibility for whatever you want to put in the middle of that triad. I don't care if it's accountability, productivity, profitability, joy, whatever it happens to be, everybody plays a role in making that possible. And it's why having the right people is so essential. Okay. I have a really simple Simon question though, which actually does go to what you said, the people in the room, this is probably dependent upon that. But is there a certain group size for a peer advisor group hmm. that's optimum? In other words, if you have like a really great group of five people, they could probably get a lot more done than say 20 that aren't the right combination of personalities. That's an excellent question. Yeah, I love that. And, one of, the th and well, one of the things that I do and I think is different about or at least unexpected sometimes about my workshop mm -hmm. that I do, whether it's for peer advisory groups or teams, is I'm not there to tell anyone what's ideal for them. Okay. Um, I provide them a framework to have those conversations with themselves. So I will say that there are some organizations that kind of believe eight is the magic number. Mm -hmm. um, Tech Canada, for example, uh, will tell you that 12 is where they really feel that um, retention gets better, the, ex the member experience gets stronger, things like that. Uh, Vistage looks at groups that are even 16 to 18. Um, now, the, the difference, of course, and like I said, it comes down to who's leading that group, what does the group want out of the experience, what does that all look like for mm -hmm. them? And I, I see um, a lot of things really being successful and really working well. So I'm not sure there's an ideal number, but I think there is an ideal um, number for the group that you're in, <laughs> if you know what I mean, in terms yeah, right. of, you know, what it's about. Yeah. Okay. So eight, everybody. Ding. Here you go. <laughs> that's, that's one of them. That's, yeah. that's one, that's one theory, you know. You, yeah. you said in our pre-show uh, interview that the number one problem mistake that managers and leaders make is, is considering themselves apart from the team as opposed to being a part of it. Can you expound on that for me? Yeah. Um, and usually when I'll say that, someone will immediately come up with an example like, oh, well, on a basketball team, you know, the coach isn't on the team, coach is on the sidelines. Well, it all depends on kind of how you look at the team, right? Because I think for the team on that floor, when it comes down to winning, uh, the entire team, you know, involves the coach, it involves the assistants, it involves the training staff, it involves everyone. General manager uh, in the press box. Yeah, and look, look at an NFL team, you know, when, when, mm -hmm. um, when they win the Super Bowl, uh, everyone gets a Super Bowl ring, not just the players, because there's that recognition of, of that team and I think being part of it. And what I think, it helps it on two fronts. One, you win together, you lose together, you laugh together, you mourn together, whatever that happens to be. But also, um, from an accountability standpoint, I think it makes it easier to establish a very positive culture of accountability when it doesn't feel like 
here's the leader on one side of the desk. Here's me on the other. I'm just constantly playing defense. And versus us all being literally on the same team and in, in, in playing in a way where we are all personally responsible and personally accountable for the difference that we've been hired to make in this organization and on this team and living up to that and recognizing that our personal currency in that team rests in our ability to do that really, really well. That feels really different than coming to work every day feeling like, whoa, you know, what am, what am I going to get, you know, dinged on today? That doesn't mean that leaders can't challenge um, their teams. I think they should. And I think team members should challenge their leaders as well. Um, but I think that's, but it sounds you know, to me like fundamental you it, it's not saying that's not my job, not my job. Mm-hmm. Oh, stay in no my question. lane. I'm siloed. Yeah. 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 It, and it, it is a matter <clears throat> of, of recognizing too, again, you know, people are there to make a difference. So when, even if you're not the leader of the team, there are times where you're going to be asked to be a leader in the team where your specialty, where your particular talents are called upon. Um, and you know, your, your voice needs to be heard in a way that, um, you know, can be really impactful for everybody. We, um, I worked for a public relations agency in Denver that had, you know, a very good sort of flat hierarchy to it, which was good because, you know, everybody was one big team, but their company culture was, um, once a month there was a brown bag lunch and they go, Leo, you're on deck, you're presenting because the half this, three quarters of the people here don't know how you do what you do. So you're going to explain it. Um, so little simple things like that can be almost like their own little peer or team advisory groups. What other ways do you suggest that are low-hanging fruit that I could easily, for our listeners, start doing now to create that sort of community and sharing? Uh, there are companies that have book clubs, and they're really successful. Oh. Um, it's just as simple as that, yeah. where people will get together, and all of a sudden they have now the share, you know, very... Um, very rare today or certainly less rare today that we have shared experiences anymore right Right. it's not quite the same as it used to be and oftentimes even if it's an asynchronous shared experience it's you know we may be reading it at different times of course but we can come together and help each other develop an understanding of the exactly the same content by seeing it through other people's eyes what i love about it it isn't just that we've learned content and we understand the book better at the end i think we start appreciating aiding each other more. We start looking at people and seeing their gifts, not just seeing, hey, this person works differently from the way I work, and I'm not sure I like that very much, and and being judgmental of others. I think forums like that, that are um, simple exchange of ideas around a common topic can really help uh, build camaraderie and mutual respect. Well, obviously, it should be your book, Let's start with. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, let's do that. But then, everybody that's, clubs the, that's the common book. You get that book as soon as you're employed here. That's the onboarding process. That's right. Yeah, but then, should it that. be a business book though, in general, so that it's you know not you know a cartoon book or something? It needs to be informative to better the organization. Correct? Or does it? Or does it? Um, yeah. So. Um, you can do it a few different ways. Um, it could very well be that let's say your book club meets once a month and there may be four books that you make part of like, here's, okay. here's what we'd love for you all to read in the course of the year. The rest of it, we'd like you to select books. And again, I think when you're part of um, a, a group of people who are taking this seriously, you want to bring a book that is really, really good because you want people to love the book that you brought. Um, so I don't think people are going to tend to bring something that is 
less than. Now, it doesn't have to be a business book per se. You know, we know that there are stories, whether it's um, whether they're fiction, whether they're nonfiction or whatever, that may not necessarily relate to, relate to business, but have lessons for us as people and as teams, you know, that can be really profound. So okay. I think, um, you know, giving people the opportunity to select that. It also tells you a little bit about someone else in terms of the book they bring to the party, right? <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I, I think that uh, the more involvement in that way, the better. How do you keep a peer group group from becoming a clique? It's a great question. Um, I think, first of all, peer groups, if you're going to have a peer group inside an organization, uh, which I would really strongly recommend, um, but they have to have, I think, a very specific purpose. They have to have a reason for existence. And to be honest, I've seen peer groups inside companies go badly because they didn't have that. And they start to become, you know, bitch sessions against the senior <laughs> leadership team and stuff yeah. like that. And, and that, that doesn't help anybody. That's just, that's just wrong on so many accounts. But if you, if you're concerned about alignment around a strategic initiative, for example, a group can be really helpful. If you're concerned about trying to create a more positive culture of accountability and together, how do we go about doing that? There's a second one. Uh, diversity and inclusion obviously becomes big. And I think fourth, um, when we start thinking about learning and development, um, it was a couple of years ago I saw this number, but it was some astronomical figures, like $360 billion globally being spent on learning and development. And all I can think of in my head is that that's going to be one of the worst investments you know, out there. <laughs> and, and not because... I mean, it has nothing to do with it. The content is great. Trainers are great. There's all of that good stuff. It can be the best stuff out there. The problem is that there's no mechanism to be able to do anything with it. You know, we get this fire hose of information in whatever form we may get it, whether it's, you know, an offsite courses or whatever it may happen to be. And we get so quickly sucked back into our responsibilities and our jobs with no mechanism for being able to take those one or two nuggets of something that we could adopt as a part of our personal habit or part of something we can do together as a team. It tends to get lost. And I think there are more ideas that get frittered away, more good practices that never find their way um, into the way we do things. And I think this is where peer groups can be incredibly powerful. Um, so for that alone, I think to have a mechanism that allows for you to take this investment that you're already making, you know, and to really be able to exponentially get that much more out of it, as opposed to leaving it all out on the field. Um, you know, I think that's huge. That's great advice. The website, leobatari.com. And I'm going to spell your last name, Leo, so that I can just Thank you. type it into their browser. B is <laughs> in boy, O, double T, A R Y.com. And at Leo Batari on Twitter. And same thing on LinkedIn. So we've got about a minute left. Are you giving your workshops, you know, virtually now in COVID 19? And if people want to reach out to you, can they engage with you? Yes, very much so. Um, I'm doing some travel right now. In fact, I'm traveling oh, wow, this afternoon. Right, Congratulations. Um, <laughs> but um, yeah, it's fairly recent, actually. But, uh, but I have been doing a lot virtually. And I think, okay. um, and part of that has been because teams are being challenged in very, very different ways right now. Mm -hmm. And even those teams that saw great surges in productivity, much to the surprise, quite frankly, of a lot of um, CEOs and team leaders out there, they also recognize that unless they pay attention, you know, things like people getting burned out, isolated, insulated, <laughs> you know, feel the feeling uh, that they're obscure, 
feeling any lack of inspiration about what they do every day. That kind of stuff can creep into your team really fast if we're not paying attention to it. So I think a lot of those things uh, have really become top of mind for us in our virtual sessions. Absolutely. Well, we good food for thought today. Thank you, Leo. It's a pleasure having you on the show. Oh, thanks for having me. This has been wonderful. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please rate and recommend on iTunes, Overcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also get more great information at salesfuel.com. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.